Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. There has been a great deal of discussion surrounding the issue of concussions in college sports. The NCAA and its member institutions have been at the forefront of research and treatment, but they've also involved at the forefront of research and treatment focusing on the issue of the mental health of student-athletes. Dr. Brian Hainline is the NCAA Chief Medical Officer, and he joins us now to talk about this issue and what is being done. Brian, welcome to you. Well, thank you. Welcome. Tell me why the, the issue of mental health has become so significant and so important to the NCAA. Well, it was interesting, Jack. When I first started the job and I met with the Division One, Two, and Three Student Athlete Advisory Committee members, they all said the same thing. They said, Dr. Hainline, we get concussion but please make mental health your number one priority. Were, so were, I, you, were you surprised at that, to, to hear that coming? Because, again, if you ask people on the street, most of them will say, oh, sure, concussions, you know, physical injuries. That's what the NCAA and the colleges need to focus on. Were you surprised to hear the student-athletes saying to you, help us with mental health? I was surprised that they made it their number one priority. It was on my radar, and it certainly is a priority, was a priority back then, but they were uniform in saying, look, we need help with this. Let's start off with the definition, probably. Help us understand this better. When you are talking about mental health in terms of student-athletes, what do you mean by that term? Well, there's sort of this continuum. There's resiliency on the one hand, and then when your resiliency breaks down and you actually can become clinically depressed or develop an anxiety disorder. And then there's the everyday fluctuation in between. So when we're talking about mental health, we're talking about the spectrum of mental wellness, which we are striving for, and then when you actually can become clinically ill. And when you're clinically ill with depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, or more serious conditions, bipolar, schizophrenia, that's really a medical issue and it requires medical treatment. Let's go back to your own involvement. You've been actively involved in sports medicine for decades now. Uh, you've done a lot with uh, you know, it's, it's Tennis Association and, and the Olympic Committee. Had you seen in the past these types of instances of, of concern over mental health, or is this something that's, that's more recent? No, this, is, this has been longstanding. And I think tennis, I'll say especially women's tennis, they were really ahead of the curve on this. When they made the player eligibility rule back in the 1990s, they were as concerned about the mental functioning of the female athletes as they were about the physical functioning. But what do you mean about the player eligibility rule? So the player eligibility rule was that a player who was 14 or under couldn't just travel around the world and play professional tennis. And they, were, they had pretty good statistics. They saw the rate of burnout. They saw that a lot of the young women were only able to play on the tour for a few years. And they knew it wasn't just physical. It was mental, emotional, societal. And so they developed this rule that you had to gradually increase the amount of tennis between the ages of 14 and 18. And you had to prove through developmental courses and so forth that you were getting the help that you needed, really in a proactive manner. And so I worked very closely with the tennis players. And, and I'll, I'll just say personally as, as, as a physician, you know, there's this sacred bond between yourself and, and, and what we rightly call the patient. And you sometimes just saw in someone's eyes that they weren't there anymore. They were somewhere else. And you can almost predict who was going to leave the tour. There's this emptiness, and then you get to know them better, and you find out that they're actually clinically depressed. They, 
they don't have the desire to be there. They don't have the desire to eat properly. And and these are real red flags. They're they're warning signals. And so once you're really working with the players and you're working with a group of clinicians who understand this, it's you understand mental health at a completely different level. When you speak about this publicly and the idea of the importance of mental health, and, and I'll get in a few minutes to talk with you about what the NCA and the institutions are doing about that. But when we get out there and speak about it publicly, do, do you find that that there's sort of a significant reaction on the part of the public where they're maybe not incredulous, but maybe a little skeptical, saying to you, wait a minute, these, these are young people who you know, are in the prime of their life. They are, they are fit. They are engaged. They're playing a sport that they love. Why would they be having mental problems? No, I think you're right. I mean, there's this, there's this sort of sense that in athletics, you're naturally tough. And you can just gut it out or get over it. And, and that's a culture that allows people to achieve to a certain level. You know, you play through pain. You, 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 you have a, a sense of defeat inside, but you pick yourself back up. And, and so it is a little bit strange. But, but I think it's also a function of our society. So, you, you know, one, one example I like to give is in, in the Army. The secretary of the Army who was recently uh, appointed is, is, is gay. And that was an inconceivable notion five years ago. But can you imagine someone in that same position who said, well, I'm a recovering bipolar individual who's undergone ECT and I'm on my lithium and I'm stable right now and so I can really lead the country. So mental health is just put somewhere else and we kind of think that people who are successful like athletes or politicians, that they're not supposed to have mental health disorders, that that's a sign of of weakness or, 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 or something perhaps even more sinister. So it's a societal, cultural problem. Throughout our history, we have, have seen scenarios where certain either medical conditions or, as you said, cultural problems are, are viewed, there's a certain taboo attached to them. We don't talk about them. Um, there might be some whispering, but certainly it's not out there. And we've seen success in a lot of those areas where now we do talk about these issues. We embrace them. We understand them so much better. Is the question of mental health sort of lagging behind that way? Is that still one of those areas where you, you, you don't get people to talk as openly if they are suffering from some mental health issues or, or a family member is suffering from some mental health issues? Oh, there's no question. And, and I think part of it is even the term, yeah. mental health. Explain what you mean by that. I think that's interesting. How we, how we, what we call things often has such a significant impact on the conversation. Why do you say that about the term mental health? You know, we have this sense in our society that there, there's a mind-body split. Whereas everything on this wonderful planet of ours is ultimately physical. It's neurobiological. It's physiological. And so once you have that mind-body split, you have mental over here and you have physical over there, that, well, you should be able to just be strong enough to not let a mental disorder overtake you. And, and, and part of that is a throwback to, you know, the beginning of the 20th century when psychiatry and neurology, they split. And there was no foundational reason for the split. Freud was an incredible neurologist, but he broke away from neurology and then there was this whole psychoanalytical movement that came up, and, and that still is pervasive today. So I think what we need to do is get back to the neurophysiology, the physiology of what mental health is. Just like 
you know, what, what's the physiology of, of an irregular heartbeat? It, it's the same sort of thing. And, and so we need to do that. I think that in the psychiatry that, world... In, in some way make it less mysterious? I think so. I mean, we've said very publicly at the NCAA that we want mental health to be as approachable as an ankle sprain. Same thing. I mean, you get an ankle sprain. Well, why do you really develop an ankle sprain? Well, you break it down. It's probably because you weren't training properly. You weren't recovering properly. You weren't taking care of yourself. But we don't see that as being so abnormal. So if you get depressed or burnt out, it's the same sort of physiological principles. But why are we blaming the person who has a mental health disorder and, and not a physical disorder? Let's talk about some specifics um, in terms of, of today's student athletes. So we have this sort of umbrella term that we use. And, and as you said, it's, you know, perhaps we'll come up with a better one sometime soon. But for purposes of our, our conversation, we have this umbrella term about mental health. When you're looking at student athletes here, give me a sense of, of, of the spectrum, if you will, of what types of circumstances, well, starting from sort of least severe to most severe, uh, what kind of circumstances you could see a student athlete experience? All right, that's a great question. And, and so you, you start with a student athlete who's just thriving, has a positive outlook, understands that he or she needs to take a break from time to time, needs some recovery time, needs to go out and have fun. And then you have the student athlete who's starting to break down, time management issues, sleeping poorly, starting to get negative thoughts, starting to feel that, you know, maybe life isn't so great, loses a little bit of interest. And then the next thing you know, you have a student athlete with an eating disorder and is so unhappy that he or she can't even take care of his or her body properly. And that's sort of one issue, and, and that's a spectrum that really all of us can, can you know, we can undergo that on a, on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis. Then you have another issue, altogether different, the student athlete who is becoming schizophrenic. What do you mean by define that for us? Yeah, so schizophrenic is a, is a neurobiological disorder. Many people believe it's actually a type of a degenerative disorder where you can no longer distinguish reality from non-reality. And so you can start becoming exceptionally paranoid. You can hallucinate and, and believe that someone on the TV is actually speaking about you and there's, there's a special antenna between the TV and you and that's directing who you are. So that's a very, very serious condition, or, or bipolar, where you can fluctuate wildly from thinking that you're on top of the world to really wanting to commit suicide. And there's not a normal sense of mental control over that. That really is driven by the brain. And that's something that we have to understand is driven by the brain and needs proper treatment. So disorders like schizophrenia, bipolar, they actually peak in the college age years. It's an exceptionally vulnerable time of what we call brain development, especially the frontal lobe. We've often heard of the frontal lobe. It's what makes humans human. You know, it's our rational brain, our ability to plan and so forth. In the college ages, the myelin or the covering of the nerves of the frontal lobe is undergoing exceptional development. And that makes those kids vulnerable. It's interesting because, again, I, I suspect if you ask members of the public, and this goes back to what you and I were talking about a few moments ago, about that, that period of time when you're a college student, 
You know, everybody talks about, you know, those, those most wonderful four years of your life. You know, all of us look back at it. Um, I, I've got a major reunion coming up in a couple of weeks. And, and my first thought is, wow, how, how is it that I've been out of college that long? And my second thought is, boy, I'd love to be back again. So you, you tend to look at this as this, this magnificent period, this sort of oasis in the rest of your life where everything is great and you're having fun and you're sure you're, you're studying hard and you're writing papers and taking exams. And if you're an athlete, boy, how fabulous is that for you? You know, to engage in the sport that you love, you know, on, on whatever level you've chosen to engage in. And, and again, most people, I suspect, would be puzzled as to what is it about that that introduces these other factors that can lead to, as you said, something as um, something such as a, a, a mild depression or a concern or a fatigue to, on the other end of things, something as dramatic as schizophrenia. How, what is it about the, the college sports experience, as magnificent as it is, that could contribute to that? Well, I think first we have to look at the data, and, and one very important thing is that if you compare a college student athlete to a college student who's not an athlete, just in the aggregate, the student athlete is more protected against depression and anxiety than his or her non-athlete counterpart. And that makes tremendous sense. I mean, you're an athlete, you know, a former football player, and there's the camaraderie of the football team. You know how to lose, you know how to win. And when you lose, you learn how to pick yourself back up. You, you push yourself to the edge of excellence. And in doing so, you're always learning how to make yourself better. These are all reinforcing aspects of, of, of a good mental wellness program, if you will. So just in the aggregate, we're better protected. But then you break it down a little bit. And when you start looking at issues of time management. When athletes are sleeping poorly, just look at sleep in and of itself. So our student athletes, when you interview them, they'll say, I want to study more, I want to work out more, and I want to socialize. So what do they do? They don't sleep. <laughs> and when you progressively become sleep deprived, just in and of itself, the incidence of depressive thoughts, even suicidal thoughts, increases several fold. That's a fact. And people might be astonished to learn that. That, yeah. that they think, okay, you're losing sleep, it just means you're tired. No, it can mean a whole lot of other things become involved because of that lack of sleep. Right. Then there's a culture. I mean, I think some coaches are just so exceptional. And, and I'm a big coach supporter. I mean, coaches are the single biggest influence on athletes. We know that. And when you have a positive culture in which the coach says, look, I understand mental issues, if you're feeling depressed or anxious, these are the people you need to see. We need to get this worked out just like we need to fix your knee or, or your ankle. But if you have an environment where you're never allowed to give voice to your feelings, and if there's a constant pressure, and if you're always made to feel that you have to tough it out, that can start building up inside and you feel like you have no release and you're always performing at a level that your body is saying, hey, I can't do that. And finally, something's going to give. I, I should probably clarify something. And you touched on it a few moments ago. And I, I don't mean to suggest by my questions that that every student athlete out there is experiencing some type of mental health problem. Um, and it, you, you mentioned if you look across the board comparing student athletes to other students, um, that there are 
structures in place that help provide support. So we're, we're not saying, are we, that this is something that, that as important as it is to deal with, even if it's for just one student athlete, we're not saying it's something that's sort of running rampant throughout the, the ranks of student athletes, are we? No, absolutely not. Look, I think the most important thing we can say is that students are students. And college-age students, when you really look at the statistics, a third of them at one point or another in college are going to be depressed to the point that they feel they can't function well or anxious to the point that they feel they can't function well. But the majority bounce back. They figure out how to bounce back. And it's a minority that becomes seriously ill. And the college student-athletes, they're in that same mix. And uh, I, I remember being interviewed and being hammered for an hour and a half about the NCAA is not taking care of mental health and this whole sports system is so unfair. And, and I was just thinking, but, but wait a minute, the, the sports system in general, it's what makes people thrive. And, and, and you even look at the data going long term, athletes compared to non-athletes and their ability to succeed in society, it's exceptional. So, yeah, so in no way are we saying, look, just like with concussion, you know, oh, don't play sport, you're going to get a concussion and you're going to be ruined for life. So, so we have to look at the risk benefit and we just have to take a step back, look at the data and then say, okay, these are the issues, let's address them. Let's talk about that. What, what, what is the NCAA and the member institutions doing in terms of addressing this question of, of mental health issues for student athletes? So we had a task force and, and that's one of the ways that we work at the Sports Science Institute. We bring university presidents and, and, and athletic directors, athletic staff, conference commissioners, and then we bring coaches and student athletes, and then the experts. We had a three-day mental health task force, and we looked at all of the available data affecting college student athletes. It was really actually an exceptional meeting. At, at one point, every single person broke down, most in tears just saying, I'm so glad we're finally addressing this. We came out with a book, but we didn't think the book was good enough, so we developed a best practices document. And we did that with 25 of the leading psychiatric, psychological, medical, and sports medicine organizations in the country. They actually all endorsed this document, put their stamp of approval, and said, this is the best way we can address mental health for college student-athletes based on the available data. Then we socialized that. Incredibly, we worked with all of the, 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 the student health care centers, all of the athletics departments. And then we developed three modules, one for every single coach in the country, one for every student athlete, and one for administrators, just saying this is how to be aware of mental wellness and a potential mental health problem. And so we're in the process of widely socializing that, and now we're actually having another mental health task force, we're calling it 2.0, where we're going to say, okay, have we addressed changing the culture. Are our interventions efficacious enough that now the culture really is changing? Coaches are, coaches are saying, yeah, this is something I'm addressing at the beginning of the season, where the athletics healthcare administrator is saying, yes, we have a rehearsed emergency action plan for a student athlete who's acutely psychotic and suicidal. These are all the things you sort of do. So it's, it's no different than re having a fire drill rehearsal in place. And you say, okay, what do we need to do to prepare? How do we have the best preventative culture? And then if there's a problem, how can everyone respond immediately without having to think about what to do? 
Are you optimistic that, that that change is taking place, that the culture is changing, it's becoming a culture more of awareness now, and then in addition to awareness, a culture of understanding and a culture that says, we know now what we should be doing here to help these young people. Are we getting there? So by nature, I'm optimistic, but then we need a reality check. But even with the reality check, so I'm asked very often to speak to conferences, and I'll go to individual school, but conference presidents, conference ADs. The number one thing I'm asked to speak about is mental health, not concussion. And we've done several- Does that surprise you? I'm sure it's going to surprise a lot of people out there, but you're in the trenches. You're involved in, in this across the board, concussions, mental health, all the things that have an impact on student athletes. Does it surprise you that that's what people are asking you to talk about? Uh, initially, I was surprised. I, I just, you know, I, I'm a neurologist. I, I came into this job and everyone was talking about concussion and I just thought that was on everyone's consciousness. And people get it. We want to get it right and we're doing the research to get it right and the education, but yeah, I was surprised how pervasive the ask would be to really address mental health. And, and even to go one step further, for us to host workshops at conferences. And an entire conference is getting together and say, this is how we're going to roll this out. And then that becomes a best practice for other conferences. So, so based on all of that and, and, and the fact that I'm being asked to address this so much and, and from the membership, the reception of the mental health best practices has been just so universally warm and embracing, I'm actually even more optimistic. Last question for you. If, if you were to be able to offer one piece of advice to, to young people, to student athletes, you know, some, a caution for them or, or, or a notion of what they should be looking for in themselves, what would you say to them? I would say to be very aware of your inner body talk. You know, it's part of self-awareness. And so when you wake up in the morning and you don't want to go to class, or you don't want to go to practice, or you purposefully are not eating the way you know you should eat, take a step back and say, wow, why am I doing that? And be willing to talk to someone about it. The single most important thing that student athletes, really that everyone needs to understand, is you need to have a buddy system. And more importantly, you need to have a system that if you're concerned that you can reach out to someone in competence. And so it's those warning signs, but also just as importantly with the buddy system, we call it bystander intervention, mm -hmm. is that if you see one of your friends who's just kind of drifting, or maybe all of a sudden is binge drinking, or putting himself or herself in a position that's really not healthy or safe, that you should feel that you can intervene. And you don't have to treat the situation, but you intervene, you manage, and you say, hey, come on, let's just talk to so-and-so. And then in the ideal world, athletics would have a system set up that you always know there's someone you can talk to. But it's just, you know, I, I think we have to, we all learn that in life. We have to listen to our sort of our inner body talk. You know, what, what, what's our body saying to us? Because our body speaks to us. And finally, same question. What would your advice be to, to the coach? or the athletic administrator out there? What should they be looking for? And then what should they be doing? 
Yeah, so it's the same sort of thing. I think for a coach in particular, just to be looking for the student-athlete who all of a sudden is just behaving differently, is starting to drift, not pay attention, showing up late, repeatedly sick, but no one really understands why this person is sick. So the coach then needs to be able to have the confidence to let the student-athlete know, hey, if things aren't right, I'm here to support you, and we have this team of people who can help you. So it's a sensitivity to these issues. That's why I, I really hope that every coach in the country would just look at this very, very simple 10-minute module we put on our website. It, it really just talks about the red flags, and that's kind of what a lot of life is about. We don't have to know how to treat everything, but if we know how to identify red flags and we know there's a system in place, that's 90%. Ryan, I want to thank you for spending some time. This is a very revealing conversation, and it's nice to know that there's so much going on out there. And I, you know, I'm, I was a student athlete. I was the parent of two Division One student athletes. It's nice to know that people are recognizing that this is indeed an issue and what needs to be done. Thanks so much for taking some time to talk with us. Well, Jack, I appreciate the opportunity. All right, thanks again to Dr. Brian Hainline. That does it for us for today. Uh, I'm Jack Ford. Hope you join us again soon on the College Sports Insider.